Daniel 8, 1 through 27. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but the one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased, and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven, and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host was given over to the horn, along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground, and perform its will, and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply, while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of man between the banks of the Ulai, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when I came I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in his place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. And the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise. 
insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree, and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. But he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told, is true. But keep the secret, keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. It is good to be back. Every so often I try and schedule these breaks in my preaching plan, partly to rest and reflect for myself, but also to get other voices in front of the church so that you have some different perspectives from the pulpit or or from the Zoom or whatever it is we're calling this right now. Uh, and as I reflected on this series in Daniel, I wanted to just say thank you. Um, I wanted to say thank you for hanging in there with me through some of these really difficult passages. And thank you for working at understanding and, and thinking through thoughtful application. I've talked to many of you about how you're learning new things, unlearning some old things that haven't helped you very much, and addressing passages and topics in this series that you may not have previously. And I think that's awesome. Now, just a few minutes ago, we heard the reading of Daniel chapter 8. This is another one of those strange passages full of images and metaphors, prophecy and enigma. And in many ways, chapter 8 is even more difficult to interpret than chapter 7, which is saying a whole lot. I simply don't have time in this preaching moment to cover all 27 verses and do it any kind of justice. So this is what I've decided to do with the short period of time that we have together in this moment. The first thing I want to do is to give you some tools to help you understand this type of writing better. So uh, in a text like Daniel 8, you'll be able to go back and maybe dig in applying some of the things that we're going to go over. Second, since this is a sermon and not a seminary class, I want to preach the good news of Daniel 8. And so what I want to do is review some of the tools that we're uh, going to use to approach the passage and then apply them to uncover the good news of the passage. All right, we better begin in prayer. Living God, we thank you that you care enough about us to reveal your heart, to reveal good news to us. And we admit that from our perspective, this is just a, a difficult type of passage to uncover. And so we pray that you would reveal to us what it is you want to say, that you would give us the wisdom uh, to interpret and also the wisdom and humility to know when we're in over our head. Uh, walk with us, Lord, as we walk with you. Amen. So for those of you who heard my sermon in Daniel chapter 7, this first part is going to be a bit of a review. But if you're just joining us in this series, you're going to need this first part to help make better sense of the passage. And the first thing I want to say is that the Bible contains 66 different books and letters written over thousands of years in several different styles or genres. And so when we look at the Bible, we're going to find passages that are narrative story and theological history, and we're going to find poems and proverbs and letters and gospels, and we're going to come across 
apocalyptic literature. Daniel 7 through 12 all contain elements of the genre called apocalyptic literature, one of the most foreign to our 21st century Western ears, and therefore one of the most difficult for you and I to interpret and apply. And so I want to give us these basic guidelines to help us. First, the word apocalyptic from the Greek apocalypsis means to reveal, to uncover, to pull back. Let me be very specific about this. Apocalyptic writing is meant to reveal what is normally hidden from our human eyes. It is to show us what is really going on behind the scenes, both in human history and sometimes also in the spiritual realm. Apocalyptic does not mean the end of the world, although it can refer to the end of the world or the end of the age. So the takeaway here is that apocalyptic writing is meant to clarify something, not to confuse. All right. Second, apocalyptic writing is generally written to a people who are in crisis or who are being oppressed. So the purpose is not only to reveal what's going on behind the scenes, but to reveal what's going on in order to encourage the people of God and to warn them to be faithful and even to warn the oppressors that if they don't change their ways, judgment will come. So when we're reading apocalyptic literature, we can ask, how would this be encouraging to the original audience? How can I draw encouragement from this text in my context? And is there a warning for me in this revelation? Third, apocalyptic literature is weird on purpose. It is meant to shock us, to make us think, to wake us from apathy or despair, uh, or from a, a place of being numbed. Just look at some of the images from Daniel 7 that Emma Wilson drew during the sermon last week. There's a lion uh, with eagle's wings, as if a lion weren't scary enough. Now they can fly out of the sky and swoop down on you. Or there's a leopard with four heads and four wings. I mean, this is utterly terrifying. Or the fourth beast with metal teeth and claws more powerful than all the others. So it's meant to shock us and to terrify us, so to kind of wake us up. The fourth strategy for reading apocalyptic is to remember that it is laden with spectacular images and numbers. So in Daniel 8, we read about a goat that floats over the face of the earth. We're not meant to believe that there's a literal goat that can levitate and kind of fly over the earth. An apocalyptic also uses numbers in a symbolic or often poetic way. And so one of the biggest interpretive numbers we see in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, is the number 4, in reference to four kings or four kingdoms. So in ancient writing, groups of four or five were used to intensify an idea. So here's an example, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, or the four beasts in Daniel chapter 7. Both of these visions began with a known element. So the first beast in Daniel 7 and the head of the statue in Daniel 2 both clearly represent the empire of Babylon. And from Babylon, the next two beasts in chapter 7, or the next two parts of the statue in chapter 2, appear to be worse than the first and they're harder to identify in world history. And by the time we get to the fourth, 
beast or the fourth element in the statue, we find it almost impossible to be sure which specific nation or king they're talking about. But what we are sure of is that it is the worst and that human evil keeps getting worse. And by this point, by starting with a known historical nation like Babylon in the time of Daniel, and then projecting an intensification to an ambitious future king or kingdom, the fourth kingdom is open-ended. So let me quote Dr. Paul House, who writes, The fourth nation basically stands for the most recent empire, so that later writers could, with integrity, change the first or fourth nation as needed. This makes these apocalyptic revelations applicable for all time. So, finally, and this is possibly one of the most underrated strategies, we should read and interpret apocalyptic literature with great caution and great humility. We are dealing with things that are the mysteries of God unfolded to us, and we should be careful not to be too sure of our interpretations. Okay. So let's begin by getting our bearings and applying some of these principles, strategies to, uh, to Daniel 8. The year in the setting of Daniel 8 is roughly 550 to 547 BC. It occurs to Daniel, who is in his 80s at this time, and he is in exile in Babylon. Now, remember, one of the strategies tells us that apocalyptic is meant to reveal what is really going on. Okay, so from Daniel's perspective, Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, uh, is in charge of everything. He's in charge of Daniel and the Israelites. He is the man. And, and he has desecrated the sacred vessels from the temple. He's arrogant. He's mean to the Jewish exiles. He is an oppressor. And so from Daniel's perspective, what's going on is judgment on, on Israel. Israel got exile and is receiving suffering for their idolatry and rebellion against God. That's what Daniel must be thinking. But now God pulls back the curtain and shows him what is about to happen. A ram is going to come with two horns, one longer than the other. And how does that picture reveal anything to Daniel? Well, first, let me just name the obvious. If you read Daniel 8 or heard it just a moment ago, you know that God sends the angel Gabriel to interpret the vision for Daniel. He wants Daniel to know some things very clearly. Mainly that the horns, which horns are a metaphorical image for power and kingship. These two horns on the ram, says Gabriel, represent the kings of Media and Persia. Another interesting tidbit is that the ram was the astrological symbol for Persia in the ancient Near Eastern way of thinking. But even better is a passage from the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 51. He is prophesying about how God is going to humble the Babylonians because of their crimes against Israel. Now, speaking about the downfall of the Babylonians, he writes, I will bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams together with male goats. So even though these images are metaphorical, in this instance, they reveal the specific nations and kings who will bring Babylon down. First, Media Persia, and then the Greek empire represented by the goat. 
Now, the longhorn of the goat is likely Alexander the Great, who was famous for his speed, which with he overcame armies and expanded his empire. But just as quickly as he amassed an empire, he suddenly died at the young age of 33, leaving this massive vacuum of power. Now, when Alexander died, his empire was split into four smaller empires, each governed by a former general in his army. And these are likely the four small horns, although we can't be sure 100%. We are entering into an area where we should be cautious. And the reason for the caution is that Gabriel has not told Daniel what specifically those four horns represent. And therefore, he didn't think that Daniel needed those specifics. And so we should not be too anxious about not having those specifics ourselves. We should also be cautious because we are encountering that number four again. Remember, apocalyptic lists of fours and fives tend to get more intense and more vague at the same time. So in this chapter, out of the four comes one small horn, a fifth, right? And where we have, um, where have we heard about a small horn before? Right, chapter 7. And in chapter 7, were we able to identify the little horn with a specific historical figure? No. And Gabriel doesn't tell us who this horn is either, does he? And does Daniel make any guesses as to who the horn's identity really is? No. All we know is that the little horn gets judged and defeated, not by human hands, but by God himself. Okay, so let's suspend judgment just for a minute to work out some of these other hard phrases. We read that the little horn doesn't stay little. It grows larger and becomes exceedingly great. It extends its reign into the beautiful land, which is a poetic way of referring to Jerusalem and Palestine, of course, where the temple of God is. And we learn that it grows up to the hosts of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. And finally, we read that it challenged the commander or the prince of hosts, that is, God himself, because it removed the sacrificial system, the horn tried to prevent the worship of God. Now, you and I know that stars can't crash into Earth, well, because of, like, astrophysics, right? Like, stars would just burn us up. You can't have stars falling onto the earth. And the biggest horn in the world can't reach up to space and like knock stars around, right? Horns, human power, can't defeat angels and the heavenly hosts as far as anything we've ever read in the Bible. So most likely what this is referring to is an arrogant human leader who attacks both worshipers of Yahweh and worshipers of the astral bodies, like worshipers of the stars, which was very common in the ancient world and even among Israelites when they would constantly slip into idolatry. This human ruler, represented by the little horn, has then the audacity to prevent God from being worshipped by making it illegal or outlawed or something like that. And in the vision, Daniel overhears someone ask, How long will this last? How long, O Lord? And he hears this, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Okay, so again, we're dealing with crazy apocalyptic numbers, but let's just take a stab at this. Could this be talk like Genesis, where you have uh, morning and evening uh, one day? 
If that's the case, then we're talking about 2,300 days. Or it could be in reference to the morning and evening sacrifices presented at the temple, which would be 1,150 days, or just over three years. Now, <laughs> what is all this talking about? Many people think that this little horn is a reference to Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who was a Greek conqueror in Israel and who tried to force Jews to become Greek by burning their sacred scrolls and executing people who worshipped God. He even outlawed, just outlawed keeping the religious festivals and feasts and, and things like that. If this is referring to Antiochus, this wouldn't happen for another few hundred years from the time of Daniel's vision. Now, Antiochus does check a lot of the boxes in this description in Daniel 8. And depending on how you massage the numbers, you could reckon his worst oppression lasting roughly three years, although not exactly 1,150 days. The, the problem is that once you have in your mind that this must be Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, you can find so many ways to make the details fit that historical figure. But I want to say this. Even if this is a reference to Antiochus IV, it is not only about him. Okay, And here's why I can say that. First, not all the details fit him. So when he died, the kingdom of God didn't come in fullness. We don't see in history that God and not human hands took out Antiochus. Second, we are dealing again with hints in the numbers 4 and then 5, along with the strange 2300 mornings and evenings that point to something a little more elusive than just being able to nail it down on this one guy. It, all of these numbers and allusions seem to describe more of a type of an evil leader to come rather than one specific evil leader. So... And the 2,300 days is more of a promise that this evil will be judged, that, that suffering will come to an end. It's not so much a specific number that we're supposed to figure out. Now, third, you could stick lots of names um, into the hat and they would line up pretty well with this description of the little horn. And so Augustus Caesar, for example, uh, saw himself as a god. And Domitian tried to prevent Christian worship. You could point to characters like Hitler and Saddam Hussein and Stalin and many, many more, all who share elements of this type of arrogance described in Daniel chapter 8. But I think that the main reason for thinking that the little horn in Daniel 8 is more than one specific person in one particular moment in history is because the inspired authors of the New Testament didn't think it was just about one person either. So Paul in 2 Thessalonians, or John in Revelation, or Jesus in the Gospels, they all make references alluding to the imagery about the little horn, about Daniel chapter 8. And all of those writers are speaking centuries after Daniel, and they're writing about things in the future from their perspective. Okay, So hundreds of years after Daniel, Speaking about events that have yet to take place, events even after Antiochus IV was long dead. So this begs the question, I guess, in the preaching moment is, how is this good news for us today? Well, the first thing is that this passage tells the truth. It tells the truth about how hard things really are. You know, Gabriel, the angel, 
he brings good news. You know where else Gabriel comes in, right? He comes in to tell Mary that she's going to be with child. When Gabriel brought the good news of the birth of Jesus, you have to remember that he was telling a teenage girl that God got her pregnant, even though everyone else would assume the worst. Things get hard before they get better. And in a strange way, it helps me to know that part of being human is to encounter suffering and hardship. I don't need to be surprised or to think that God is doing something bad to me or bad in my particular generation. There is real evil in the world right now. There has been, there will be, but it will come to an end. And I think that that's the second piece of good news. If the first piece is, is thank you, God, for respecting us enough to, to give us reality, right? The second thing is that we can have confidence that God will judge that real evil in the world, that he will rescue and save and renew creation. You know, I mentioned the images of the ram and the goat and how they were likely drawn from Jeremiah 51. But where else have you seen a ram and a goat in the Bible? They're animals, both of them, used in the sacrifices for sin. So think of the ram caught in the thicket who took the place of Isaac, or the scapegoat who takes on the sins of the people. And Jesus fulfills both of these images. And the good news is that Jesus sets us free from the eternal consequences of our sin and evil as we trust in him. That is absolutely good news. That is freeing. That is in solution. That is in nugget form, in seed form in Daniel 8, pointing forward to the Lord. The time marker in Daniel is not something we're supposed to figure out. It is a promise that the reign of evil and death has a designated end that God alone has determined. And it will end and God will reign and we are encouraged to trust in him. And finally, we're invited to join God in his work of blessing. So he's dignified us by telling us the truth. He has given us assurance of, uh, of our rescue and salvation and forgiveness in Christ. And from that strong position, we now are invited into his work. I think that one of the most intriguing verses in Daniel 8 isn't the stuff with the images and, and the little horn. It's the last verse of the chapter. Daniel is sick because he's so terrified from this vision. And after days of being sick, he gets up. And after being exhausted, he says, Then I got up and I carried on the king's business. Daniel ended up serving three oppressive kings, but he did it by serving the king. He was loyal and faithful to God through all of the hardship that he and his people endured. And we're called to do the same. We're not victims. We're not passengers who are just writing history, trying to avoid all the bumps in the road until God sorts things out. We are called for such a time as this to be active agents in God's world. We're called to serve the king. We are living, right, in the midst of a pandemic, in the, in the midst of, of political divides. I mean, our nation is really torn. Many of us are struggling. Most of our friends and neighbors are too. You know, we may not be able to do very much, like literally, we can't even get, get together with a group of people. But what would it look like to be about the king's business in such a time as this? 
Who might we pray for? Who could use a phone call or a card of encouragement? Who might be vulnerable in this season that we could pay attention to, to help, to, to lift up in the name of God? In the weeks to come, we're going to have multiple opportunities as a church to bless local neighbors uh, as, as a church community. And, and I want to encourage you to consider how you might get involved about being about the king's business for such a time as this. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for revealing things behind the scenes. Thank you for addressing uh, our pain and our suffering. Thank you for showing us that it has a clear end. Thank you, Lord, for, um, yeah, for taking on our part in the evil and suffering. And thank you, Lord, for giving us the dignity of, of joining you in your work. Um, Lord, would you touch each one of us in the power of your spirit, reveal creatively how you're calling each of us who you've uniquely made and positioned and gifted. Show us how we might be about your business, both as individuals and as Leonard Street's Covenant Church. Amen.